Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, before we get started, a quick reminder about the new and improved Other People app. The Other People app is new and improved. It's available for free Wherever apps are available, go get the Other People app. It's new and improved. It's free. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this podcast. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And here's how it works. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. So you get the app. The app is free. Once you have the app on your device, the most recent 50 episodes will be waiting for you free of charge. When a new episode is released, it will appear on your app as if by magic. You don't have to do anything. It happens automatically. And then if you want to get at the full archives, if you want to stream, uh, what is it, almost 375 episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. It is as cheap as 75 cents a month, and it gives you access to everything, all of the conversations with great authors, including Cheryl Strayed, Sheila Hetty, Roxanne Gay, Ben Marcus, Ben Fountain, Ben Laurie, Jonathan Leatham, Tao Lin, Edward Jodontica, Eric Larson, Jess Walter, Maria Semple. The list goes on. The Other People app. Go get it. The app itself is free. Sign up for a premium subscription. Support the show. That would be great. All right, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me sitting here alone. This is you sitting there alone. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm alone. I'm in my garage. It's nice to be with you. I have a very good show for you today. Bill Clegg is my guest. Not only is he a very prominent literary agent in New York City representing some of our nation's finest writers, he's also a best-selling author of two addiction-related memoirs, the first of which is called Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man, which is a harrowing account of Bill's descent into crack addiction. And the second memoir is called 90 Days, a Memoir of Recovery, which details his recovery. Uh, And now he has just published his debut novel, Uh, to rapturous acclaim. I think that's fair to say. The novel is called Did You Ever Have a Family? It's available from Scout Press. It has been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize and has also made the long list for the 2015 National Book Award. Not too shabby. You're going to hear my conversation with Bill Clegg momentarily. Uh, He was here just a few days ago in the garage on probably the hottest day of the year, (laughs) which I feel bad about. I mean, it was uncomfortable. 
I won't lie to you. There was no, you know, there's no ventilation in this room, as I've mentioned many times on the program. It was also, on that day, strangely humid. It had rained the night before. The weather was weird. And, you know, Bill has been on a very uh, extensive book tour, traveling the country, being celebrated for his achievement, rightly so. And uh, he's been doing a ton of press. And then, uh, if you can imagine it, suddenly here he is in my sweltering, filthy garage. And, uh, you know, he had this look on his face. And for the record, I could easily be making this up in my head. I'm prone to this kind of uh, thought process. But I felt like Bill had this look on his face, like, what the fuck am I doing here? Is this real? Am I being punked? (laughs) Uh, But to his credit, he came in, he settled in, he sat down, he schwitzed. We both schwitzed together. And uh, he gave a great interview, despite his fatigue, despite his grueling tour schedule. Uh, Just very generous and forthcoming, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from him. So uh, before we get started, I do want to mention Tweaked Audio, today's sponsor. If you need some new earbuds or or, uh, some new headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Get yourself some earbuds, get yourself some headphones, improve your audio situation. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, uh, that's it. I, I think we should just get started with the show today. Let's just do that. Let's just get started with the show today. This is my conversation with Bill Clegg, and his novel, One More Time, is called Did You Ever Have a Family? You know, the culture, you know, doesn't care about books in a way and so when they do it's a miracle and then um and then to make them care it's you sort of have to talk to everybody like try and get you know into every magazine and you know my job as an agent is to encourage that for my writers and hope that they have as many opportunities to do that and um because there's so much competing for people's attention now well and it's just if anybody invites you it's like i i have that feeling like people invite you to go do a reading it's like you can't say no 
yeah. somebody is actually nice enough to invite you, even if you don't love doing it, yeah, it feels uh, feels really wrong to say no. <laughs> yeah, I will say no if it's not in the period of time where the book is being published. Like I like just because I have a day job and and um, but you know I and I I feel so grateful to my publisher and just grateful to be published. Period. I mean it's it's a it's an honor and so to say no at the point at which the book is going into the world seems disrespectful and um, and kind of like. Um, antithetical to everything that I do, even though it's uncomfortable and it's not exactly like where I would choose to be, like you know. Um, but uh, but it's it's okay, like it's 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 okay. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But worse problems to have. Exactly. You know, on the on the on the scale of of uh, of things to dread, it's it's uh, it's you know pretty um, pretty low down on that. Okay. Okay. Well, I uh, I'm, I'm interested as well in uh, the fact that you're coming at this with an agent's background. And uh, I know you get asked about this a lot as well, but uh, it has to give you insight into the process from soup to nuts. Like you go into the deal-making process, you finish your book, you have an agent yourself. I so do. your former boss is Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. Yeah. She's your agent. Right. And I believe in agents. You believe in agents. Yeah. Okay. So, but you know, you hand her the manuscript, she reads the manuscript. I presume she gives you feedback. Uh, you guys work on the manuscript together before yep. taking it out, just like a normal process. Yeah. But then when it comes time to pick which houses to go to, which editors to go to, that's obviously got to be more intensively collaborative than it otherwise would be because you know the business. Maybe, but you know, I also i I have a lot of writers who I work with who are very familiar with the book publishing world. I mean, it's um, and sometimes that's good. You know, it's people who, for example, go to an MFA program in New York, like Columbia or NYU, they they have occasion to cross paths with agents and editors and all sorts of people in the business. And so I, I often, you know, before sending out a, a manuscript, will get a list of of, uh, of editors that, that 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 writer, you know, hopes to be published by and um, and they want to have see their book. So I don't think that like my my fluency in that that world is um, in some cases, I mean, I, I made a couple of suggestions to the list, um, but um, but also in in terms of literary fiction, there's a it's it's not exactly the the longest list in the world, you know. So there's only so many possibilities, right? And um, so so I definitely had a few opinions and uh, and then followed Jennifer's lead. Okay, so let me ask you uh, broadly, not specifically about you, but just broadly in terms of publishing. When a publisher invests in a book uh, for a goodly sum, whatever it happens to be, six figures, seven figures, they put a bunch of money up uh, for the advance. They then tend to go to bat for the book more, true or false? You know, really after a book is bought, like I think people on the outside tend to be like very concerned with like how much uh, gets paid. And I'm concerned with how much gets paid for my clients because it's their livelihood. So of course I want them to be paid as much um, as possible. It does not mean that that books that that get very little by way of an advance don't get a full court press and a fierce publication. There's you, uh, there's such a long period of time between acquisition and publication that there's a narrative that 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 occurs like after that for all the people in house who read the book, you know, um, and you know you may have like a, a series of independent booksellers who become obsessed with it early on or you might have somebody in in sales who then tells somebody else 
you know, uh, in a different department to read it. And then that, that finds its way to the publicity department and to the marketing department. Like I've seen books that are, have come in, you know, with very little fanfare become lead titles later based on how people react to it in that kind of great kind of domino uh, effect. And that's, that's, that's what happens in the world after. too. I was going to say that's like a microcosm of just word of mouth. Yeah. And that's, that's the beauty of books is that like people have a, a reaction to it. That's, powerful and hopefully and and then that like leads oftentimes to you know uh other people reading it and if those people happen to be librarians or if they happen to be booksellers then uh they actually they have great influence on 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 people buying that book or or picking it up or checking it out of the library so um so yeah it's advances are are, are terrific and people need to to um to make a living and, and pay their mortgages and all that stuff. And, and I'm all for big advances for literary fiction, but, um, but it's not a foregone conclusion of anything. But it also puts pressure on a book to perform in the marketplace, doesn't it? it? I mean, or at least, you know, you can, one could perceive it that way. If you get a big advance, you're then thinking to yourself like, well, this thing better earn out or. Yeah. I mean, I think there, I think no matter what somebody gets paid, like if they've worked really hard on a book and it goes into the world, there's enough, pre- there's plenty of pressure. You'll find it. Like, no matter right. What. Right. So. Any author, yeah, any author is going to go through that. So, yeah, you obviously um, know more about what your clients go through now that, that you've published three books. Yeah, I have definitely um, been on this side of it a few times now. So, uh, I have a keen made, appreciation for what they go through. Has it made you a better agent? I hope so. I mean, I, 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 I hope that you know, sort of, all experience uh, informs how I, 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 I work with my writers and also how I react to their manuscripts because a reaction to literature is informed by everything that comes before. But I do have, I think before I was published ever, um, I think I had a kind of toughen up buttercup approach to publicity, you know, just like, this is the time, don't complain, get out there. And, um, and now I, I, I know, uh, you know, more intimately sort of what that exposure feels like. So, um, so yeah, I think I'm more sensitive to it. And, yeah. um, and uh and you know to the extent that i can ever use my own experience in in a um in a comforting way um so that uh so that i don't just seem to be like preaching from my safe office on fifth avenue like you know as they're like in wichita and two people turned up <laughs> at a bookstore like you know i've had that experience not wichita in particular but like you know it's it's a it's an exposing thing. It can and, be humbling. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I hope, I hope, I hope it makes me a better agent. So, do you know? You get uh, long listed for the Booker. You get uh, a buzzworthy deal. Let's just put it that way. Um, the reviews have been mostly great. There's been a lot of good buzz. You have a lot of people interested in talking to you. Um, you're doing Bookworm. You're doing <laughs> doing this show. Um, you're getting in. You know. A lot of the glossies are all that kind of stuff happens based on past experience with clients. And, um, I guess based on past experience, uh, as a author publishing two memoirs, is there a point at which you feel like, okay, this thing's going to go, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what is it about a book? What is it that makes some books go and others that might be worthy of uh, a big readership not getting them? Is it, is it, do you have any sense of it? Is it just word never. of mouth? I never have the answer to that. No. Never. I don't. I really don't. And uh, um, I was hoping you would. I've been asking people for four hundred interviews. <laughs> There's no answer to it. And and you know, like, and some things just some things don't happen right away. Or it's it really it's it's just the the more I um, 
I stick around and, and, and attend the publications of my clients and friends and, and just watch my colleagues in the business um, go to the mat for the books that they care about. And, and then you watch them go into the world. It, it, it's really, it, it's, it's a mystery. I mean, there, there, are, there are some things that are meaningful, but, you know, the, the reading public ends up becoming, you know, the, the, the judge of all things and, uh, and, and sometimes swiftly, you know, sometimes slowly. And, 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 um, and then great, great things like, you know, awards later, you know, there's, there's, books that have been completely ignored and then like somehow like end up winning or becoming a finalist for something. And then everybody pays attention and everybody gallops to it quickly. Right. And it's just the story of books and it has, you know, a kind of a lottery feel in a way, like you just never know. And I think that's what makes it interesting. It's like, um, and it makes sense. I mean, think about a book and how much time it takes to invest in actually reading a novel or a memoir or a biography or a collection of poems. And, um, and so, and people just have like very subjective responses. And so to get everybody to agree on something, like I think it's great when people buy, like everybody agrees on a book and, and buys it and it sells a lot of copies. It is not like, but like, I mean, it really isn't my primary concern when it comes to what I decide to age in. And I, it, it isn't my like metric for success. Well, what either. is your primary concern? So excellence and something that like I, something that is, exciting to me as literature, exciting to me as art. And, and, and then if I feel like I can be useful in any way in terms of helping it succeed on its own terms editorially and then guiding it toward publication and then along the way and then, and then that career afterwards, which is fascinating to be on the front lines of, if I can be useful in, in bringing people to that. But sometimes, you know, some writers, it's, it's never going to be more than like a hand, like a couple of thousand you know, copies sold and some fierce fans, but th- those books may influence books that may sell a hundred thousand copies. Well, it's I'm just- thinking of like the uh, the um, profile of Joy Williams in the New York Times Magazine. I felt like on my Twitter it was like Joy Williams Day last uh-huh. Sunday. She's uh-huh. one of those. I mean, she's she's got more than two thousand fans, but she's one of those writers that writers love. And yeah, she's a crew. You know, she's amassed this following over her career that's just really passionate. Yeah, you know, and she would. Uh, and, and then I was thinking too, as you were talking, there's a writer that FSG just uh, published her stuff posthumously, and her name is escaping me. And she's a bestseller now, eleven years after her death. And I'm, you know, yeah, that can happen too. But we're just, you know, but the country's so obsessed with fame. It's like, you know, like, the, and the literary world is just as vulnerable to it. And it, it's just like, I, I, I think, uh, you know, some of my favorite books, like you know, some people have read and a lot of people haven't and, and, and clients that I've worked with, you know, haven't had that great readership, but, um, but are, but capture my imagination more than ones that have sold like, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. It's just that it is a business publishing, but in the end, like, you know, literature isn't like, you know, it it is, it's on its own, it's art on its own. It's, it's, it's something that's created by somebody. It matters to them for a while. They move on to something else. They create the body of work, like expands from there. And so some of it will sell, some of it will get great reviews, some of it will get bad reviews, some of it will be completely ignored, which is a lot of the case. And, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the merit of the, of the thing itself. And so, um, but, but, you know, in, it's why I recommend that writers leave New York if they get a book deal is I think the further away you get from that conversation, you're still there. 
I don't have a choice. You're I mean, agent. I I'm an agent, and that's that, that's my primary. You got to be in New York to be a good agent. You think I could probably be like on Mars now, but like, um, but uh, because nobody really needs to see me, I can you know I can pick up the phone and say like, hey, I think you should read this. <laughs> like, you yeah, know. yeah. But um, but I have a husband who works in network news and is very much in New York, and so we're in New York, and you know I built a life there. It's a great city. It's a great city, and um, and so and I love it. I absolutely love it, but. I also am not relying on, like, I mean, for the first however many years, 15 years, even longer in New York, I wasn't a published author. I didn't plan on being a published author. It wasn't like the, it wasn't something that was the goal. And so, um, but but if, if you are choosing to be a, a, a novelist or a poet, I think it's it's enriching to be in a, in a community like New York with other artists. But I find that the chatter around... Um, who got what and and is 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 demoralizing and and corrosive and corrupting to the process and so um but plus the people are super competitive yeah it's like it's 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 just you know i think like there's a there is a confusion of um i mean like in the beginning of this conversation it was like some 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 do well and some don't do well. Some blow up, some don't. And and that becomes the lens that like people look at at a book. And I and which I think is um it makes sense within the the context of a publishing question, but in the context of 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 literature, it's sort of like to me I it, it it's our job as agent and publisher and publicist and all, you know the little army that assembles around a book that has to be our primary concern to get it out to as many people as possible. I just don't, you know, want, you know, readers and the writers themselves to internalize that as a, as a measure of success and failure. So, um, because you know, people love that story of like the ignored artist who like then like posthumously gets like celebrated and it becomes like the thing that everybody's lunging at. And by the way, the uh, the woman whom I was referring to earlier, I'm the irony, the sad irony of the fact that I can't remember her name is not lost on me. I just right. want to state that for the record. Right, right. <laughs> but well, because the thing that matters more to the conversation, in a way, is sort of like the fact of her like being ignored all her life and now she's posthumously a bestseller. So her name is Ancillary. She fits a she fits a slot in right. kind of like a regular carousel of like of storytelling in like in the in the book world or in the art world. It's like there's always somebody who's been ignored who's now being celebrated, and people scramble to be the one that like holds them up and be their discoverer or their champion. You know, too late. And um, so, like the fact that you don't remember her name in some ways isn't surprising. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've also got a newborn. I, you know, my brain isn't at its top form. Uh-huh. Um, and this garage is hot. And this garage is hot. This is oh, you weren't here last week. It was. It's been like uh, crazy hot. You, get, you gotta get a fan in here. Yeah, I gotta get something. So, uh, what are you best at as an agent? What's your strong suit? Well, I mean, you're one of the better literary agents uh, in New York. Certainly, with your public, you know, your publishing history in recent years, you're one of the better known agents. I think that definitely, um, you know, raises name recognition. Writers uh, are more pr- like apt to know who you are. Does that? I mean, has that been the case? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not outside my own experience. Are you getting more queries than normal? No, it feels like. I mean, it feels like around the same, I, I, which is more than we can handle. Um, and I have, a, you know, I started a company a year ago. I have four assistants, and you know, we're always like, you know, swimming against a, an overwhelming tide of, of of submissions. It seems like it's always been that way. You there take were, clients off a slush pile? Oh, sure. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, which is a mistake to say on radio. <laughs> <laughs> but I. But actually, it's not a mistake because the truth is, is that you know, I I take a look at everything that comes in, and um, sometimes it takes me a very long time, and sometimes I don't read all that much of it. But like, I I take a look at all of it, and maybe the best thing that I I. Um, that I do is just like I have a I, I have a sense of like what what I can be useful with and um, are you a good negotiator? You must be pretty good. I, I you know I don't know compared to who I have no idea. I you know I think if if I have a sincere feeling about somebody's novel or short story collection um, and sincere about their uh, you know what they're doing uh, and their voice and and I think it needs to be heard, then I'm, I'm driven by, um, you know, uh, a sense of, uh, wanting that, that writer to be heard and, um, and to be able to make a living and to be able to write more things. So uh, like, I, I feel like I have, my job is easier in that case. I think, so if I'm a, if I'm a good negotiator, I'm negotiating for something that I really believe in. And so my job is also to like only, uh, negotiate for things that I truly believe in because if I don't, then I don't think I'm very good. Yeah, and then you're bullshitting. Yeah, and so I just so if I'm good at something, I think it's it's now recognizing what it is. I feel like I can sort of be most effective. Do, for. Does deal making in book world ever get contentious in the way that I imagine it does in like film and television, where people are you know it's like yeah, white and white knuckled and bluffing and you know that kind of stuff and like dropping the phone and maybe I mean nerves get frayed certainly. Um, and, and tell me a story. No, (laughs) I can't ever. I can't. That's the thing. I can never tell any stories about what I do, but, um, but, uh, you know, I think when people, I feel the most, uh, tension when it's a situation where there's a number of publishers, number of editors who are working very hard to be able to acquire, uh, something and it's an auction. Yeah, and and only, you know, one editor and publisher is going to end up with that with that book and that author. And um and so I when I have that experience of like falling in love with something and then making a case for myself to be that person's agent, you know, I I'm usually not in a comp- competitive situation. It doesn't ha- it's not so formally competitive certainly as a as a, a book auction where everybody's sort of lined up and it's a beauty contest and there's money and there's all sorts of considerations, and um, and so uh, you know when when the, the the negotiating and the bidding gets to a certain point, and people start realizing that they're not going to end up with that, then things get get kind of awful. Really? Um, well, just awful. Just and I mean awful, not because anybody's saying terrible things to each other. It's just like there is a it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, we we are in the business. You know, the people who I work with the most. Um, because we love literature and somehow being involved with the author in the, the completion of it and the, and the getting it into the world of it, um, matters to us. So like, it's not that, that often that you really have such a powerful response to a piece of literature. And, and so if you, you see the possibility of working with someone and then that possibility is sort of taken away because your boss didn't give you enough money or whatever the circumstances or you said something stupid at the meeting and uh and then that author was not to be with you uh <laughs> then it's 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 a genuine heartbreak and 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 these are people who I work with all the time and 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 uh and and feel for it and and so the editors you mean yeah the editors the publishers 
And so, you know, there can be some like real heartbreak in that, in that, that moment. Um, okay. so. so let's say, let's say uh, I'm your client. I write a book. It goes to auction and you have, there's five publishers vying for it and they're bidding very, that's like the ideal circ you know, circumstance for a writer. You have multiple interest. There's a bidding war. Uh, how do you advise clients? Like when, when a client is in that situation, do you say, you know, I mean, I, I can't imagine it's just take them, take the highest offer. Oftentimes it makes itself really clear. Oftentimes I'm, I, I mean, it's real. And usually they say like, well, what are we going to do? And I just, and I usually just say, just stay open. And, and nine times out of 10, the, 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 the most right, you know, sort of, uh, pairing uh and an outcome is gonna is gonna reveal itself and it and it, it won't be difficult to identify yeah and um and every once in a while there's it's difficult to identify where you've really got like you know a green apple and a red apple and either one would be great and and in a way you just the, the, at that point the advice is imagine you made the decision and play it out, like see if it feels good in the imagining and, and, or f see if it feels bad and, and spend a little time with that. And, um, that usually works. That usually like guides them, but it has to be their call. I, I mean, I can't, you know, I can answer questions and I can sort of give you, give them my hunch, um, or some of my impressions, but in the end it's their book and it's their, you know, it's their publication and, and it's a decision that hopefully will last for a long time that they'll be published by the same editor and publisher for, for more books. And so is there a different, like there's obviously a, uh, a, a difference between being published by Knopf and being published by, uh, a small indie in terms of prestige, in terms of, uh, review attention, like there are the considerations you have to make. I mean, I think too, like an author would probably be measuring his or her, um, you know, chemistry with an editor. No, that's more I think that's the most important thing. That's it. Yeah. It's also if like if there's any work to be done. I mean, maybe there's no work to be done on this book, but there will be probably on some book. And so if you if that author is super passionate about this book that doesn't need to be edited, but talks about it like it's a different book, you might not want to end up there because when you turn in a hundred pages of your next book and they say, oh, I think it should be in the third person, <laughs> and that man should be a woman. I mean, then you, you're, you know, you're not in good shape. So, right. um, so I think you want your sensibilities to align and, and, uh, and to feel comfortable and feel like you can actually have a conversation with that person. You're not afraid of them. And, um, and, uh, and, then, and then all the rest comes into play. But, um, and you've had good experiences as a writer with uh, editor relationships? Yeah, I've had great experience. You yeah. know, Pat Strawn was the editor of my fir first two memoirs. I adore her. I revere her. And Karen Kostalnik at Scout um, has been phenomenal. And so, Scout's a new imprint? Scout's a new imprint uh, at Simon & Schuster, yes. Okay. Yeah. And you're so, one of their, like, uh, like earliest authors, correct? Yeah. It's been yeah. a good experience? It's been great. Okay. Yeah. Like man booker long list. They're off to an yeah. auspicious I, beginning. I have nothing to complain about. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. No. Um, so I guess like I want to, I want to talk more about, uh, your agenting career. Um, you achieved a lot of success and at a relatively young age, how did you do it? I, well, I, you know, I ended up working for uh, an agency that represented primarily nonfiction uh, called the Robbins office, a woman named Kathy Robbins, and she's still an agent. The agency still exists. Um, and um, I was an assistant. I didn't know how to type. 
Um, I did you learn? I I, I type like uh, uh, you know like the wind. How now. do you? How do you? Oh, you do. Yeah. So yeah. is that how you write your books? Uh, yeah, yeah. You don't do longhand. Uh, a combination. Like okay. I do. Like you know, if um, it, it actually has more to do with where I am. Like if I'm in, you know, if I'm in the the screened in porch in the back of our house, I'll just take a composition book and and write stuff out. Um, and, uh, but if I'm, you know, at the kitchen table, I'll have the computer and sometimes I'll just, you know, feel and you can like, piece it together. You can keep track of everything. Yeah. You can. Yeah. I also oftentimes like write stuff on my iPhone and just email it to myself with book in the, in the subject line. You ever use voice command? No, I don't I have know a, that. I have, yeah. The little microphone in the bottom corner of the keyboard, you can talk into the phone and it'll. Oh, really? Yeah. I have, oh, a, friend, wow. I have a friend who wrote her entire book that way. Does it? But does it translate the your voice accurately? Because I feel like no, you got to go through an edit. Like there's sometimes it mishears you, and, uh-huh. you know. But it, it, it and she she did it while driving. So oh wow, it was, wow, it was safer. Wow, <laughs> was she a taxi driver or something? No, Is no. that why she did it? Just you know, it's how she does her creative. She does her best creative work and on the move in a car. Mm. But it feels like good for her. Yeah, technology. Yeah. I think I think there's something like pleasing and and uh, useful about actually writing something out as well Mm. so and sometimes i'll just be in the mood to do that so i do i do both okay so you get to new york uh you start working for the robbins office office and how old are you 22 20 okay so fresh out of college yeah you did the radcliffe program i did was that good it was a miracle that i got in it um i wasn't a great student. I went to a college that nobody ever heard of. What is it? Washington College on the eastern shore of Maryland. Never heard of it. See? Uh, <laughs> it has like 800 students. It's a great school. And, um, I mean, it has a beautiful campus. And But I was just, I was I was there and I drank a lot. I got thrown out in my sophomore year and came back um, to graduate. And so I, uh, I was dating somebody older who had worked in New York in publishing at the time. And, and you knew you wanted to go to New York? No, not at all. I thought I'd be a, a, a gardener in Connecticut. And um, and and so this uh, older girlfriend who worked at, at Random House at Crown uh, had said, what are you going to, what are you going to do? And we, you know, I, I read all the time and, um, and even though I was a shitty student and... Um, what did you read? And, you know, I read everything, but I, you know, at that point I was reading, um, you know, kind of a lot of, uh, like 19th century novels. And, you know, I was like in, I was reading Hardy. I was reading, you know, Lewis Grosset Gibbon. I was reading Dickens. I was just, you know, I was really just deep in, you know, a different, uh, I, I never read anything contemporary. I had no fluency in what was happening, like in the publishing world at that point. And I had no, but it's a good education. Yeah. I mean, it was also, but it wasn't, for me, it wasn't an education. For me, it was just like what I did. I just disappeared into books. Um, we didn't really have TV growing up. And Your parents um, hippies? Not at all. They were the, op- my dad was a Navy pilot. <laughs> and you didn't want any TV? It's just, we, well, it was, we grew up in, I grew up in the woods. And so there wasn't much, it was, it was antenna TV back then. And we were in a very rural part of Connecticut, so like, there was, like back to the land. What, what is this? No, it wasn't back to the land. It was just it was just rural. You know, it was a long driveway. You know, fifteen minutes from the center of a tiny town, and um, and so like maybe there were a couple. We just it just wasn't part of my growing up, and um, and so I just read a lot, and um, and but and didn't really talk about books with people. It wasn't like sort of how I identified socially. Most of my friends didn't read. 
And um, so I had this older girlfriend, and she was just sort of um, incredulous. She just couldn't. She was, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in this town and be a landscaper and gardener. <laughs> and I, you know, just said, uh huh. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and she and this this guy um, who had a small reference book publishing house in in town. Um, like they both suggested this Radcliffe publishing course in at Harvard. And I actually think that she got the application, um, for me and I somehow completed it and somehow, um, ended up talking to the, the director who was a woman named Lindy Hess, who was really, she changed my life. Uh, I mean, uh, she acknowledged that my grades were not so great and that I, I was going to say, if you got thrown out, you couldn't have been magna cum laude. No. And she, she was like, uh, um, and she, my essay was some loony essay. I can't, it had something to do with like the harbor in Essex, Connecticut, um, and boats. I have no idea. And uh, I, I, anyway, was it influenced by this nineteenth-century literature? Yeah, exactly. Okay? Right. So, uh, but I, they let me in, and so I, there was sort of a, it was just one of the situations where it was so outlandish that they let me in that I kind of had to go. And when I got out, I was offered a job at this at the Robbins office, and in my mind at that point, I'd be in New York for a year or two, and I would go back to Connecticut, where I was from, to the small town, and I would like tell stories at the bar about my year in New York, which a lot of people had done. Like that was a, that was not an uncommon path. Like people who had gone down there for a year and you know worked as a bartender or did whatever they did and came home. And yeah, I had friends. I went to school in Colorado. I had friends from mountain towns, like small mountain towns in Colorado. Uh, they would go to San Francisco for a year or two, yeah, and then go back to the mountain town. Yeah, it's um, it was almost like a, a kind of walkabout. Like for for somebody yeah. rural to go to the city was this kind of like rite of passage, and um, and so I just I didn't I didn't doubt that that was what would happen, and um, but then when I started working with um, with writers, I can't explain it. It just became very clear that this is what I was supposed to do. Like it just it it. Um, I recognized things that I responded to. It sort of flowed. It, 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 I didn't work any harder than anybody else. It just came naturally to You're me. You're good at it. I felt useful. I just, for the first time in my life, I felt like, oh, this is something I can do. And and it it, it spotlighted a place in the world. And up until that point, I didn't realize I had one. I mean, it just, I didn't, you know, I, I just wasn't one of those kids who grew up and, and you know, plotted like, the college, the law school, the job. Like I just, I had, I didn't have a, 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 a terribly ambitious sense of, for my future. But luck played a role. Luck played a role. Yeah. And then you got in and then you worked your ass off. Yeah. Do you have a good mentor? I mean, aside from the people at Radcliffe, did you work for somebody at Robin's office or somebody who really taught you the business? Well, Kathy Robbins was, you know, um, she's a great agent and she, was passionate about the things that she was passionate about. And I saw how that translated into great work. And, um, and she, so to the extent that I had a, I had an example of somebody who was uncompromising uh, in her choices of who she worked with and, and how that informed how she worked, that, that really became, you know, uh, a model. And, um, even though we ended up working with very different kinds of books, um, I really looked up to her and she also like allowed me early on to, to sort of pursue, I think also I was a terrible assistant and, and I think we got along really well. And I think she was, she was happy to maybe find a different use for me in the agency. And, um, and so that's how that happened. I was with her for eight years. So as an agent, like you learn, like in terms of being uncompromising, like there'd have to be situations where you could make easy money publishing a celebrity memoir 
I don't know. I no. just maybe maybe for some people, but I feel like uh, you for, wouldn't do that. It's not that I. It's just that. Well, first of all, I do represent some celebrities. They just happen to be great writers, like Diane Keaton and John Waters and Angelica Houston. Like I've represented their, their books, and they they're great writers. I mean, like without their celebrity, they're great right. as writers. And um, so I don't I don't look down on celebrity memoirs, but. Um, I just think that if I don't have a feel for it, if I'm not responding to the writing, then um, then that w- maybe somebody else could could get the the seven figure deal or whatever or, or cash the easy you know um, chip and and you know just kind of um, cash in. But I it's just I would flub it. I wouldn't you know I'd be like here's this thing I, you know, like I don't know, like I just you're I, not a good bullshitter. I, I don't think so. I mean not when it comes to literature anyway. Okay, so uh, it's, there can't be there has to be some precedent for agents who also write fiction or write memoirs. You're not the first. And I'm sure. I'm sure you're not going to be the last. But you seem to be. We're a dime a dozen. There's a lot of them. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have no idea. I was going to say I don't I either. Was yeah, I have no idea. Okay, that strikes me as odd because uh, when you talk about having to have a day job, being a literary agent would seem to be a really good job to have if you want to write. I know it takes a lot of time, and writing takes time, so that that part of it makes things difficult. But um, I find that I mean, literary agents read tons yeah more than writers usually um you're getting you know constantly reading and that has to help you as a writer i mean it's just, yes no i mean does it make it harder do you, are you do you find yourself like becoming intimidated because the work that you're representing sometimes is of such a high quality do you find yourself uh, overwhelmed because you're so sick you know you're so exhausted from reading everybody else's stuff you don't have time for your own like do the two things work symbiotically uh I'm sure they do on some level, but like it's uh, my feeling about writing is is kind of a little bit more like woo woo like than, than practical, which is that I, I sort of feel like if you're if you're meant to write something, it will find its way no matter how much you read or don't read or how busy you are or, or how not busy you are, um, and if it it there it, it kind of in my own experience and in my experience with the writers who I represent, like it develops its own sense of urgency and bullies its way through no matter if you're a doctor or if you're a taxi cab driver, if you're a housewife and, or if you're a literary agent. And, and so that it is just something that ends up like happening. You know, sometimes it takes many, many years, sometimes the summer. And, um, so in terms of me being an agent, I do read all the time. And, um, but I'm not sure that necessarily like, makes me like like a better or worse writer i just think it's just that just happens to be my job i think you know being involved with writers in the the kind of the the genesis and evolution of their their novels and and memoirs and 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 you know witnessing the kind of um the shaping and the carpentry of how books happen over time just like watching how people can you know hit dead ends and and then and then write out of them to places that are surprising and incredible. Like just witnessing that possibility and that happening again and again and again, which is on the level of a miracle sometimes. I think that has that's probably influenced me more than anything it's, else. That's a rare vantage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 uh, and I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. And um, so and and so it is. It's like it's one part inspiration. It's like you know many parts carpentry. And so, so I, I think seeing how that has happened, 
uh, time and again for other people it just gives me like the a sense of what's possible and uh, and because there's certainly many time moments along the way where it doesn't seem possible it seems too overwhelming and too difficult and so the answer is just to keep sitting down and doing it yeah if if you feel like you need to write something if you don't feel like you don't want to write something don't you know like like the world doesn't need another book right so um you know what i mean like but it if but if it feels overwhelmingly urgent and like and that you have something to say or you even if you don't know what that is what if it's say, just what if it's just bugging you in like that, in some sort of like persistent that's where i'm at <laughs> yeah but i actually but like that that would qualify as, is. as something as an urgency it won't leave me alone then do it i'm doing it yeah I'm just good. saying it's just uh you know it's been following me for a long time and i can't shake it yeah well that's a good sign that it's supposed to happen um so, so you don't start publishing until you get sober yeah yeah so that had to have some connectivity i mean this has all been i mean you wrote two memoirs about sobriety some connectivity i mean it's directly linked yeah absolutely like i mean i i i wrote a memoir about my active addiction and that sprung from you know uh you know a, a process of remembering writing down things that i thought i would forget because they happened in a you know fitful paranoid like drug-induced state and so um and i at the time couldn't differentiate like fantasy and paranoia from from fact and so a lot of those things i wrote down thinking that maybe later i would be able to sort of sift through it and and have a stronger sense of of um you were doing this uh, while you were while you were fucked up no 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 this is after after the fact yeah. trying to just like yeah. recollect yeah yeah so you weren't yeah. thinking like this is going to be a great memoir oh no no no, no. no. Yeah. and uh and so um and so you know when i when i went back into some of the those those pages that where i hand wrote a lot of just everything i remembered things that were said like and um it just kept on coming and uh and uh and then it it just it i didn't have a choice it just it sort of demanded to to come out and uh and and so in that process of of shaping those memories into a book that um you know, I, uh, cared about, I, uh, I recognized that I could, I could write a book and, um, I didn't realize I could until I did. And it was very, uh, bracingly honest, exposing parts of yourself that, um, be scary to, to share with the world. Yeah. But I think the way it, I didn't, I didn't have, that wasn't, that wasn't the fear that was, uh, hovering over the process because the process for a long time was independent of thinking that I would get it published. And also the, um, because of the way in which like I, um, we're, we're talking about portrait of the addict. Yeah. When I got the, the way in which like I, um, got sober was after losing, you know, everything and doing it very publicly. And so I, I, I kind of had lost my anonymity. And so what had happened was, was public. What had happened was, um, you know, um, mortifying and demoralizing. And so anything that I would write, um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't like, Oh, whoops, uh, people are going to find out I'm a crack addict. They knew. And so I didn't worry about that. Also, you know, Nick Flynn told me something once that I think Mary Carr told him and, um, it's a good lineage. And, yeah, exactly. Which was, which was like that thing that feels like the most, shameful or embarrassing or the thing that you feel like can't be written is the thing that you should lean into and really write the out of. And, um, 
And um, are you allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Oh, good. Write Say the, whatever you want. That's what you should write the fuck out of. And uh, <laughs> and because that's what's going to be useful. I mean, that's what's going to. That's what people. That's what a reader is going to respond to. Um, because by the way, I can't pee in public if there's a line behind me. I just want to share that with you. Really? Yeah. The thing about not being able to pee as a kid. Uh huh. I can. There's a lot of people that can relate. Stage to that. fright is a, is like, a yeah. rampant disease in this in male culture. It's just like you're at a you know if I go to like a sporting event and there's like a line of drunk people. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, dude. I, I and need, the open trough where it's like yeah, I need, every, a, yeah. I need a splash guard. I need a splash guard. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, right. But you know, you go to those places. Readers can relate. I think next on to something. Yeah. You got to go where it's uncomfortable. You, you have to do that. And, 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 I've, and I, I found that as a – that was maybe the most useful thing anybody ever told me um, when I was writing that, the, the memoir. And, um, and even the second memoir, like I ended up writing about my relapse after five and a half years after I was back in the publishing, days. after I had published Portrait of an Addict. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and, I, and I was just like, ugh, no way. I'm not writing about that. And then I, you know, I followed that advice. It was like, no, it's not useful if it's not, if it's not complete. And, um, and so for people who are listening who might not be familiar with the uh, memoirs, uh, can you give like, just like a brief timeline of your struggle with addiction in terms of like the years that you were using and like how it escalated and then how you finally got into treatment? Well, Portrait of an Addict covers, you know, sort of uh, the um, the beginning, middle, and end of my active addiction, and it w- which began when I was twelve and I was drinking and in my room, you know, out of a thermos most nights, and um, then in my twenties, uh, I found crack cocaine after doing a lot of drugs before that in high school and college. And what was um, it, was any? Do you think that your uh, using had to do with your sexuality? I think I'm just an addict who just loved drugs and, um, and was going to find, I I mean, I, I had heard about, um, no, I don't think it did. I don't think it had anything to do with my sexuality. I think, you know, I, I think you could have, I could have taken, I might've thought like, oh, I'm gay and I'm in the closet and I don't know like how I'm going to navigate that. Let's drink and smoke crack at that situation. Like, so at the time it was an excuse, but it, but it really was not a core reason. The right. core reason is just that I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic and was since the day I breathed air. And so, um, so, and in fact, that was the, that was the project of portrait of an addict for me was, was to kind of like, was to, you know, really explore the, the, um, the evolution of that disease in me and just, you know, uh, and sort of like how it, um, first reared its head and, and the shape of it over time until I couldn't, until I, until I didn't want to live anymore. And, um, and almost died. Yeah. I mean, I tried to kill myself in a hotel room when I was 33. And so, um, so that was the, that was the project of that. And, um, and, and so the, and crack was like from age 25 to, to 33. How do you, how do you, and you've, I mean, look at you now. Yeah, I'm a sweaty pig in a, in a garage. And <laughs> You're like, like, I wouldn't smoke some... crack in a room like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, no, I would have. <laughs> this looks familiar. Yeah, right. Uh, well, I'm, you know, I, I guess like the question for me, and I, I have this question for people. I mean, I guess it's a question that you're posing to yourself in your novel. Um, you know, how do people uh, rebuild when calamity strikes you know whether it's in the form of addiction or it's in the form of loss or both um how have you managed to rebuild uh you know, it's an ongoing process i mean i'm not i don't mean to say it's yeah a, I'm, I'm not standing on the other side of a finish line but uh you know it's um i've been really lucky 
I, I mean, first of all, I'm lucky that I lived, and I, did, I don't take that for granted at all. And, and also, sobriety didn't come easy to, to me even after I crashed and burned and lost everything. Um, you know, I, I struggled to put together any, any days in a row after, after I first, um, sort of stood up and in a, um, you know, in a psych ward in Lenox Hill hospital, like after that, it was a long struggle to just, you know, get some time under my belt. Um, I relapsed a lot in early sobriety, which happens often. It happens often. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes people just like they, you know, fairy dust gets sprinkled and they go into recovery and they don't look back and they never pick up again. And God bless them. Um, that is not my story, but, um, and so I think I, I just, one, one way in which I was able to rebuild was that I, I was lucky because there was, there were things that I, I loved and, you know, I, I, I really loved what I did. I loved publishing. I didn't think I could go back for most, for most of the year that I was in recovery only just going to meetings and and really diving into a fellowship of other alcoholics and addicts in recovery um i i thought going back to book publishing was off the table and i had no idea i'm not qualified to do anything and so besides that so i had no clue what would happen um and and actually during that year like not having a clue and not caring for a while uh was was the greatest gift um you have family support I had family emotional support, yeah. um, and uh, you know I talked to my dad almost every day during that year, and this was after a seven-year period where we didn't speak at all. Yeah, my, and, and my condolences. I, I read that he passed away recently. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. But I, and I, uh, I was very, very lucky that in that period we came back together and, and managed to become you know great friends. I mean, in the last ten years, we were you know he was one of my best friends. Wow. And uh, which, if you told me when I was young, I, I just would never have believed it. What was it? Was it when you were young? Was it a personality difference? Was he was he difficult to get along with? Were you difficult to get along with? Like, what was it that kept you apart? And then what was it that brought you back together? He was an alcoholic, and and uh, and um, so the apple doesn't fall far. Yeah, no, he was an alcoholic deep in his cups, and I was an alcoholic that was about to, to, to drink, and so the combination wasn't pretty. We didn't want, like, he's, I wasn't what he wanted, and, and he wasn't what I wanted, and, uh, you know, um, and so, and we, you know, neither, neither of us managed that terribly well, and, you know, it, when I was 33 and, you know, was really at the, at the bottom of stuff, um, he was also kind of reaching his own sort of bottom he, his second wife had left him and he, um, because of the drinking and, and all the behavior and attitude and, 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 um, and unpleasantness that comes with that. And, and, uh, and most of the people in his life were, you know, had kind of stepped off as, as happens to us. And so that had happened to me too. And so, you know, we didn't have a lot of people. And, uh, and it's, like, it's you and me, kid. Yeah, it was kind of like that. And he called and he was just like, you know what? Like, I didn't do a great job. I'm sorry for that. And I just said, you know, I didn't do such a great job either. And, uh, and we just kind of, it was sort of like we forgave each other and we just kind of accepted each other for who we were. And we just, it, we moved on. And, uh, and, you know, here was a guy who I never told anything like that mattered to me to ever. And then I, you know, I remember that year, and it was just like, you know, my longtime boyfriend. You know, I was guided by um, your parents knew that you were gay they, at that point. Yes, yeah. yeah, I had been with somebody for almost ten years, and um, and uh, and uh, and 
that relationship, it was recommended to me that I get sober outside that relationship. And so I ended that relationship, but it was the greatest grief of my life. I didn't think I could survive without him. And, um, and so, uh, but I talked here, I was like, like whining to my father about like, you know, this guy. And then I was in various relationships like during that year and I would talk to my dad about that and he'd be like, you know, steady now. It's okay. Like, <laughs> you know, he was like, he was like suddenly like, you know, right. you know, my, my gay best friend. Um, but it, I'm just so grateful. He was just awesome that year. And, and, and really ever since then he was, you know, when I got married to my husband, um, two years ago, you know, nobody was more proud. Nobody cried harder. Nobody was like more supportive. And even, you know, even later, um, you know, when we had our first fights, you know, I, my dad like kind of gave me the St. Crispin's Day speech about marriage and how great ours was and how much he loved my husband. And, you know, if you had told me that even like the most watered down version of any of this that he had said, right. uh, I just would never have believed it was possible. That's awesome. Miracles are possible. Well, you know, and it's a, it's a blessing because um, people who have stuff that goes unresolved with their parents and then they lose their parents. That's a heavy thing to carry. Yeah. And so the fact that you have, um, you know, in that, that 10 year period or whatever it was, you know, yeah. towards the end of his life where you guys really connected is pretty awesome. It was a real gift. And, you know, in, in the novel, like there's a number of characters who, um, don't get to resolve, uh, th their issues with their, with their parents and with their family and, um, and, or with their children. Some do, and, um, and, and, you know, I, when I was writing that, I, I just, it was, it was with my relationship with my dad well in mind, uh, about how kind of lucky we were. Yeah. Uh, it was against every odd. And, you know, a lot of my friends, a lot of the people in my life, uh, I see not being able to kind of cross that. Uh, I think it's Michelle shocked. Like she has this great in, um, Anchorage, Alaska, that song she's talking about friendship, but she's about kind of an estranged friendship. And um, she describes it as a burning bridge, like crossing that burning bridge after like not being in contact for a long time. And I just see a lot of people I know not having crossed that burning bridge um, like before it's too late, you know, before somebody dies. And yeah. so um, I think it happens. And I'm glad in my case with my dad, it didn't. You think if you hadn't hit bottom that it ever would have happened? I mean, it seems like it kind of I mean, not that it took that, but I, I don't think. Well, if I was going on as I was, you know, as a, an active drunk and addict, nothing would have been possible. Right. Like, I, I mean, I just would have like, you know, I just like I would have, you know, walked off a, a, a you know, a, a fire escape or something. I, I mean, some I, I wouldn't nothing. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't tenable. Yeah. And I had pushed it long past the point where it should have already imploded. Right. So I it's so there's really no there's no way to imagine. It's like the only way to imagine that is if I was like a sober person who would have just kept on living his life as I did. And and then you know, and then suddenly one day decided to forgive my father, which that isn't ma imaginable. We needed exactly the level of pain we were in to be able to kind of, uh, be open to each other. Yeah. Yeah. What about, what about mom? Yeah. Like, you know, she and I've had our stuff and, um, but, uh, but yeah, like she's, she, you know, I would say that we've, we've worked through all of our stuff too. The memoirs were really helpful. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, there was a way. In I which... mean, it's, it's overused to talk about memoir writing or writing in general as an act of catharsis, but you do, it does place a certain, it forces you to order your thoughts at least a little bit and yeah. it externalizes them. 
Yeah, I think in the way I, I didn't the experience of writing the memoirs were cathartic to some extent, but um, but it was the fact of them being published, and um, and you know I remember there was a an article in Vogue like and 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 I had just said whatever I said and you know responding to what was in the book or talking about my relationship with my mother, and um, and sh- my mother got an early copy of it somehow up in Bangor, Maine and, um, <laughs> and came down on me like a ton of bricks. And, um, and I remember we had a phone call. I was upstate at, um, at Nick Flynn's house actually. And, um, and she hung up on me, I don't know, like nine, 10 times. And I kept on calling back and we just, we got through it that day. It just forced us into this conversation. And, um, and, um, you know, and I, like a lot of like the things that I thought were true and like I thought were unfair and, and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, after talking to her, like, and really sort of getting to the bottom of like what it was that was between us that wasn't working, you know, um, you have to hash it out to see if you're right or wrong. And I was right on some things and wrong on a lot. And, um, and it was so painful to have that conversation. I can't imagine we would have had that conversation if, you know, if, if I hadn't somehow, you know, uh, and maybe like that was part of what I was doing was like, you know, sort of speaking out of turn and, and provoking this kind of reckoning with her. And um, and and so I'm grateful for that. And we're you know, I just I adore her. You know, we're a family still and, and an active and alive one that um, then we have our, our ups and our downs. All and, families. Yeah. Do. But would... but we're but we like talk about it. We're engaged and and. And, you know, the the big sort of sack of resentment that I, like, dragged around for years, <laughs> like, like, a, like a petulant teenager, like, I put that down. And, that, um, and it's, it's, it's a relief. It allows us to have a relationship. That's awesome. Yeah. And so uh, before I let you go, you published two memoirs. Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, the, the process of sharing with the world, you know, all these different parts of yourself, some of which are unpleasant. And then you turn to fiction. Um, it's a seven-year process of writing. Yeah. Four years of which you were just basically doing background work on your characters. Is that right? I did a lot of, like, when I was writing Portrait, I, you know, I just started writing about the town. And, and um, I, uh, you know, I think I said, like, there were these three words, she will go. And I had no idea who she was. I had no idea where she was going. So r- while you were writing your memoir, you were beginning this novel, yeah. not really knowing what it was. But if you had asked me if I was working on a novel, I would have said, I'm working on a memoir. And I thought that that, actually, that work, that sort of play was in service of the memoir. I, I did for a long time, and um, but but I was writing voices, you know, of people that didn't exist. So like, <laughs> really, I think I was also very hesitant to name that I was writing a novel. I think it was too scary. It was too big. It loomed too large, and so somehow, like my my process was to was to do it for a long time and um, and pretend that I wasn't. And um, and at a certain point, there was so much material and there was a center of gravity around it and even like a method of it that was beginning to take shape that I, I could no longer um, lie to myself anymore. So what, what stage? I mean, how many years deep into it were you before you were finally like, OK, I'm writing a novel? That's like about I would say about four years in. And you're working in pockets of time at work. No, never at work yep. and never and usually never in the city. It would it would be you know, on the weekends or in the summer, you know, or, um, over like the long holiday, like usually I, I take like three or four weeks around Christmas. The, the company that I worked for, William Morris had these big breaks, um, at Christmas, 
Um, and, uh, and so a, a lot of writing would happen then. And, uh, and sometimes I would just like take a couple of weeks off in the middle of winter and go up to either, um, Nick Flynn's house or later the house that, um, my husband and I live in, we moved into four years ago. And, um, is that a second home or is that where your primary residence is? It's where we go on the weekends. Yeah. And, uh, and I would just like hole up and pull up the drawbridge and just like write for a couple of weeks. And usually when I write, you know, I've sort of tell people that I'm, you know, taking a week off or two weeks and I wake up early in the morning and just sit at the kitchen table all day and into the night. And that's all I do. And so it's just, and your husband leaves you alone or is he yeah, even there? Or stay, he just stays in the city and works and yeah. stays away from it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and that, that sort of completely immersed place, uh, has, has been, um, kind of necessary for me and it's kind of an all or nothing thing. And so, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm fully immersed in my client's work and the day to day, uh, running of the company. And see, that seems like a nice, ba- it seems healthy. You know, well, it's not all about you. Well, what's great about it is that it sets up a series of like reunions. It's like by the time after a week or two weeks or however long I've, I've spent like working on my own stuff, I'm usually so sick of it. And I've painted myself into so many impossible corners that I can't wait to get back into somebody else's work so I can boss them around. No, yeah. And uh, I had lunch with a friend today and I'm just like talking about her book and I'm just like such a relief to be up and, you know, dealing with somebody else's problems. Or yeah. No, else. Oh, totally. It's everything seems manageable when it's not yours. Right. And, um, and also just, I, 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 I love the agency. I love the, you know, the, the four assistants who I work with are fantastic. And so, um, my assistant, Chris is just, you know, submitting his first book right now. He's becoming an agent. And so like all of that is just as thrilling to me as anything that I could be doing like at the kitchen table upstate. Like, you know, what's Chris's last name? Uh, Clemens. All right. Uh, Slash pile Chris Clemens. Yes. C-L-E-M-A-N-S. And he's brilliant. And he's been my assistant for four years and any writer would be lucky to have him. Uh, you like writing fiction better than writing memoir? It's a lot more joyful. That's for sure. I mean, mainly like the subject matter wasn't exactly a lot of fun, (laughs) but also, you know, it's because, you know, I was with, I was in Edinburgh with this great writer named Andrew Miller and I've been, um, shamelessly repeating something that he said, which is that, you know, uh, like with, with memoir, uh, you sort of have, uh, the clay, which is the chronology and, and the, the events that you're going to transcribe. But with fiction, you have to, you know, make the clay first. And, um, and so that sounds sort of daunting and horrible, but for, for me, what's so cool about it is that you don't really know, know. like I would sit down to, to write and I would start playing with a voice and, you know, kind of tuning into it like a, a frequency on a radio, and and then it just would, you know, it would just surprise me what I, what would what would come out. And so I just and for so long in the book, I didn't know really like where it was going or what would happen or what the backstories were. And as they kind of hatched and and made themselves known, it was thrilling. It was just like this these you know it was like discovering Machu Picchu every time. And and I was alone. And it's, it's sort of like you finish, you know, nine hours at the kitchen table and something so surprising, um, you know, would happen or a connection between characters would happen. And, you know, I would then like sit down to dinner with my husband or call him on the phone and, and try and explain. And it, you, you just sound like an idiot. It's just like, <laughs> you're like speaking with like, you know, your hands and trying to like conjure some essence of what, and it's stupid. So I've stopped doing that, but, yeah. um, it just had the thrill of discovery that writing memoir didn't. And, and, uh, and so I, I just, I, uh, I loved it. it and you're writing it. another one. You maybe. I'm working on something now that maybe three novels, maybe absolutely no novel, maybe nothing, but but I'm just fiddling with it right now and it's Well, it's that fun. seems to be how you do it. 
Yeah, well, better to not name it in any kind of formal way. And also, genuinely, it is nothing. Like, if you if you strung it all together right now, it would look like a shopping list. So um, so this is like the, the character work. Like, you're in the four-year period where you're just kind of noodling. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, and, and, you it's know, just the, exactly right right now. Well, but and the thing, too, and then I'll let you go, is that, um, you know, with your book, you're dealing with multiple voices. You, you gave yourself a hard job. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one thing to to write in one voice. You're writing multiple characters, multiple voices, and then, you know, you can do that, and you've got a uh, like a you know a prismatic story. All the characters trying to relate one tragic event or relate themselves to one tragic event, and then um, you have to tie it all together. Mm-hmm. The ending had to be a bitch to write. No. Weirdly, I saw the ending. Um, not the last words, not the actual last chapter, but the um, the last sort of scene, like the last thing that happens. I saw early, like in that three four year period, and I I knew it, and I knew why I wanted it, um, and um, and yet I had there was no obvious way in which that would ever happen. I had no idea how to get there, and I sort of so I knew that I knew that that's where it was going to go, and I just and I kind of gave up any idea of like how I was going to get there. And I just, as I kind of inched along it, like there was a little, there became a footpath that, that sort of began to glimmer. And then I sort of like wrote toward that, but, but where it ended up, I, I, I kind of knew, but I, but there was so much that had to happen in between and nothing made sense for a long time. And I did paint myself into a lot of corners and there was so much that didn't end up in the book. Um, but all those, all those sort of painted corners were sort of necessary crises that needed to happen to kind of like produce the solution that got us like further toward that end. So, you know, it's like, it is like a, it's like a puzzle and at least for me, for me it was, and, um, and it could be very frustrating, but then like, it's like when you find that puzzle piece and it fits, it's just like. Yeah, you know, like FaceTiming your husband and talking with your hands. Yeah, and and he and he's just like, (laughs) okay, good night. Yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, I I appreciate you making the time to come here and sit in this garage with me and talk. It's been such a pleasure. I congratulate you on uh, the memoirs, your sobriety, the novel, and I wish you continued success. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, guys, there you have it. That is Bill Clegg. Great conversation. His novel, Did You Ever Have a Family, is out there now from Scout Press. And uh, you can find uh, the Clegg Agency on Twitter. And you can uh, find them online, too. They have a website. I think it's thecleggagency.com. That's Bill's literary agency. You can also locate him uh, online in an authorial context at BillCleggAuthor.com. BillCleggAuthor.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about that app, the brand new Other People app. Go get that app. It's free. It looks great. The new edition of the app. Available where you get your apps. If you want to email me, send me a letter. Let me know what you think of the show. Tell me a story, what have you. The email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So, it's been a busy day. I, you know, I had to take my son to the doctor earlier. Do you guys really want to hear about this stuff? Uh, it's like his two-month appointment. He had to get his shots. That's nice, though. He can be out in public now. He's got his vaccinations. But he's been having reflux. We're dealing with reflux. Want to hear about an infant's reflux? And then uh, after that, I went to uh, Whole Foods. I had to get some, like, uh, baby drops for reflux. And I'm in Whole Foods. Got my son in the cart. River, he's in the cart. 
and he just has a meltdown. And you know how in uh, grocery stores like Whole Foods, they have music playing and they kind of pick really upbeat pop songs of yore. So if you can imagine me in Whole Foods in like the uh, health food aisle, not that it's all health food at Whole Foods, but I'm in like the crunchy, you know, vitamins and supplements aisle looking for these drops. And I've got my kid in a car seat inside of the cart pushing him and he's having a meltdown and on the speakers is playing uh, to the beat of the rhythm of the night the uh, hit single from DeBarge that's been my day and then uh, just uh, a few minutes ago I was in here setting up prepping getting ready to record my daughter Evan five years old comes into the garage wants to talk to me wants me to be a dad that happens sometimes. You know, I've been exiled to the garage. I used to be in our uh, proper residence, but now we have two kids. There's no room for me, so I'm out here in the hot, filthy garage, which is fine. I accept that willingly. And in a way, it's kind of nice because it puts me at a remove. It gives me a little bit of peace and quiet, place to concentrate. But every once in a while, my daughter comes out here, and today she came in. She sees the microphones. She sees her father working. I think she wanted to talk, so I interviewed her. Thought I would share that now. Why not share that at the back end of the show? little kid interview this is me talking to my daughter evan right now not right now but this is me talking to my daughter earlier tonight all right evan so you're uh you're in the garage i just wanted to talk to you for a minute or so about uh you know i guess what what's going on in your life that's a hard question. It's been a while since we've talked on the, on the on the show. People are probably wondering what's going on. Last time we talked, your baby brother had not been born. Now he's been uh, he's been born and he's been here for eight weeks. How are you doing uh, with a, with uh, the whole baby brother situation? Um, kind of nervous, kind of happy. Having fun with him a lot, helping mommy. Okay, and you like your brother? Yes. You do. Okay. What are you going to teach him? teach him how to walk, how to dance, how to do somersaults, uh, how to skip, and how to walk. Okay. Um, anything else you'd like to tell people? Did you get in trouble at school today? Oh, I told you already. No. Okay. But you got in trouble once. Twice. Twice. Talking to the microphone. What happened? What, what were the two times you got in trouble? When I throw the truck. When I hit somebody. Wait, you throwed a truck. You threw a truck. You threw a truck at whom? Maria. Maria being your teacher. This was a couple of years ago, right? Uh-huh. Why did you throw a truck at Maria? I think it was three years. Okay. Why did you throw a truck at Maria? Because I wanted her attention, everybody. And then you uh, you hit somebody. Who did you hit? Annabelle. You hit your friend Annabelle. Why did you hit Annabelle? Because she was getting a popsicle because she hit her lip. Wait, what? She was getting a popsicle because what? She hit her lip. I didn't hit her, but she just walked into something and hit her lip and she got a popsicle. And then you hit her? Yeah. Why did you hit her? Because it was not fair. Everyone else didn't get a popsicle, but she did. And so you hit her. That's not very nice. I know, because I was, well... I'm and I was still little. Okay. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. So did you say sorry? Yes. Have you worked things out with Annabelle? Mm-hmm. You guys are friends? Mm-hmm. You're on good terms? Yep. All right. Well, listen, I love you, sweetie. It's good to talk to you. Can you say goodbye to everybody? Bye-bye. See you next week. 
All right, there's my daughter, Evan. Isn't she adorable? Brief interview with my, uh, my firstborn. Already five. Seems more poised. It's nice to do these periodic interviews to track her, uh, her progress as a human being. I'm very tired. Have I mentioned that lately? Do you guys want to hear me complain about my fatigue? Please remember that Balzac was never elected to the French Academy and that Beethoven washed excessively. Please also note that Balzac's name sounds like Balsack. I think it's time we realize that as a society. That's it for now. Thank you uh, to Bill Clegg once again. Go get his novel, Did You Ever Have a Family? Thanks to you guys for listening, as always. I appreciate it, sincerely. And I look forward to talking to you again soon and sharing with you a conversation with another writer. I like this song. This, this song right now captures my fatigue in a certain way. My inner uh, state of being. My uh, je ne sais quoi. My energy. My aura. I like it. I'm just going to let it play. I don't know what to say. I've said enough, have I not? Sometimes you just need to let the music play. There's a life lesson for you. And as I as I impart that life lesson, I am ignoring it simultaneously. Talking as I talk about the need to not talk while the music plays. I never learn. That's my problem. I know better but I don't do better. I don't put into action the lessons that I've learned. Why is that? Imagine me dancing to this music. <laughs> I often imagine Charlie Rose dancing to the Charlie Rose theme song. I think I've tweeted about that. It's such an odd song. I feel like his theme song is odd. Can you, can, it's a jazz number. Makes me think of Charlie Rose dancing alone. I'm not afraid to admit that. Charlie, if you're listening, I hope that doesn't weird you out. What am I talking about? <laughs> just feel like the end of the show just keeps getting weirder. And more troubling. How many of you people, I wish I had statistics on how many people actually listen to the end of the show. People who don't uh, listen to the end of the show, they might be missing out. They have no idea what goes on at the end of the show. An entire world, an entire uh, universe of possibility expands before the listener. (laughs) 